0: Last Sunday, we announced that we're beginning a, well, as of last Sunday, was a nine-week journey through the Gospel of John. Now we are in eight weeks. We're on an eight-week journey of the Gospel of John. And the reason that it was nine weeks last week, and the reason that it's eight weeks today is because Sharon and I are only going to be here through March. And there's eight weeks left. And our schedule and our lives will become much like your lives. They're going to be busy. In May, I'll be teaching for two weeks in Africa. And then in June, I don't think we've announced this yet, in June we're attending Sharon's 50th class reunion graduating from Bible College. Now you're wondering how she can be out of college 50 years when she looks like she's 35. But she is celebrating her 50th graduation from college. And uh, Then also in June, we're planning to attend a week-long Bible conference on the East Coast. And then in August, we'll be in Colorado working with the Navigators for the whole month of August. So, you know, I don't want to keep saying this every week, but we love being here. And even though we love being here, we're going to be gone out of town more between April and August. We're going to be gone more than we're home. So that's why the sermon series is only nine weeks and now eight weeks. Our goal for these weeks, I want us to understand this. I want to be clear about this. Our goal is not to get through the Gospel of John. That's not our goal. That never has been our goal, and it never will be our goal. Our goal is not to get through the Gospel of John. Our goal is to get the Gospel of John through us. And that's two completely different things. So that's what we're trying to do. And as I said Last Sunday, instead of working our way through chapter by chapter, we're going to take it, we're going to do a different approach as we do a survey of the Gospel of John. Now, I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but I'm going to tell you part of the story. Seven times, how's that? Seven times, that'd be five. Seven times in the Gospel of John, Jesus uses the phrase, I am. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. I am the bread of life. Seven times he uses that phrase in the Gospel of John. Over the next eight weeks, two times we're going to look at some of those phrases. Now, I would encourage you, as you read through the Gospel of John at home during the week, every time you see that phrase, I am, circle it or underline it. So it'll jump off the page the next time you read it. Seven times, here's the second point, seven times in the Gospel of John, we have what are called the seven signs. Now, there are, as near as we can tell, and if you, if you want to try this on your own, you can go home and count these, seven times in the Gospel of John, we look at miracles. Now, there are 37 miracles in the New Testament, all done by Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke each have around 20 that they use in their Gospel. It's not exactly 20, and they don't all talk about the same 20, But between those three, there's 37 miracles. When we get to the Gospel of John, there's only seven miracles. And they're called signs, not miracles. So when you're reading through the Gospel of John and you're looking for the I Ams, go ahead and circle those. And then when you get to the seven signs, circle the word signs. The word signs actually appears in the Gospel of John. And then on five, including last Sunday, on five of the nine Sundays, we're going to look at what we believe to be some of the most powerful, significant words in the Gospel of John. Last Sunday, we looked at the word believe. You remember that, those of you who were here. The word is believe. The most common word in the entire Gospel of John is the word believe. It it appears more than any other word in the Gospel. Some people would say, well, because it appears so many times, it must be the most important word. Well, we could have that conversation. I don't know whether it's the most important word in the Gospel, but it's definitely one of the most important words. Depending on which Bible translation you use, the word believe and or all other forms of the word believe, believing, believed, believes, believers, that word appears hundred and twenty-four times in the Gospel of John. So it has some significance, and last week in particular, we looked at one verse where this, verse, where this word shows up. It was John 1.12, which says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, there's that word believed, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then as we looked through that, we looked at two words in there. We, we tried to understand what it means to receive Christ, and what does it mean to believe in Christ. And we came up with this definition, at least I did. Yet to all who accepted Jesus... And invited him to be their companion in life. To walk with them through every day of their life. Through the good times and bad. To those who were confident. To those who believed in Jesus. Who were confident that he is who he said he is. That he is the son of God. That he is the long awaited Messiah. That he is the lamb of God. To those people who believed in him. He gave the right to those people. To be a child of God. Now this morning, we're going to switch gears. We're going, we're going to look at one of the seven signs. We need signs in our life. Do you realize that? We need signs. We really do. We need signs to get from one place to another. We need signs that offer us directions. In fact, if I think about it, and I did think about it this past week, it would be difficult to live without, <clears throat> without signs. Signs help us get to the correct exit on the interstate. Signs help us find the bathroom in an unfamiliar building. Signs help us to know if we're on Marion Road or Sertoma. Signs help me find the cereal aisle over at Hy-Vee. We would agree, I think we would agree, that without signs, if we think life is kind of chaotic and hectic now with signs, Can you imagine what our lives would be like if there were no signs? So with that in mind, I'd like you to turn to John chapter 2, and we're going to look at one of these signs. John chapter 2, and I'm going to read the first 11 verses. Now, if we're wondering what the purpose is, what's the purpose of signs in the gospel? The purpose of the signs in the gospel was to prove to the world that Jesus really is who he said he was. The purpose of signs is to prove that Jesus really is the Son of God. Now, I'm going to read the first 11 verses. Are we there? It's not on the screen, just the references on the screen. Well, okay. I'm going to read the first 11 verses. Here's God's word. John 2. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonially, ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And then verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs, go ahead and circle that or underline that word signs, was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Most of us are somewhat familiar with this story. Now, let me go back and reminisce for a minute. Today is our 46th wedding anniversary. 46th years. Sharon has put up with me. And I have been blessed. So this passage from John chapter 2, which talks about a wedding, is more than just a little appropriate for us on our anniversary. When we got married, I would say that Sharon and I were a lot like those of you who are married. We had little or nothing. In fact, if I think back on it now, I mean, it was a step of faith for us to get married. Sharon had some pots and pans and some dishes, and I had a car. And we had Jesus. And that's all we had. And we were committed that we were going to make this work. I can't remember all the details. Sharon's been upset with me from time to time because I can't remember too much about our wedding. And for her, it's ingrained into her memory, and she remembers every little detail. But I do remember this. We had had pink cookies at the reception. Uh, Sharon had this great idea, and she's right, that since it was the week of Valentine's Day, it would be appropriate that we had pink cookies at the reception. Now, I don't know what else we served. I don't know if we had salads. I don't know if we had sandwiches. I'm sure we had wedding cake. But I remember those pink cookies. Now, I want you to think, about our wedding 46 years ago, and I want you to think about this wedding in John chapter 2. If we, 46 years ago, if we would have somehow ran out of pink cookies at the reception, Sharon's mom, she would have been embarrassed beyond anything I can ever imagine. She's a stickler for details, and she loves to bake cookies. So she actually baked hundreds and hundreds of those little pink cookies. Not only would Sharon's mom have been embarrassed, I probably would have been embarrassed. Sharon would have been embarrassed, the whole wedding part. I mean, how do you, how do you run out of food at a wedding when people are supposed to RSVP, and you already know how many people are coming? Well, I don't know about the RSVP thing, but that's what's happening here in John chapter 2. People are invited to the wedding, and they ran out of wine. Now, how does that happen? Do you not have any idea how many people are coming? But that's what happened in the Old Testament. And you remember these stories in the Old Testament. All those weddings in the Old Testament, they were happy. They were joyous occasions. You remember the wedding between who as it was, Jacob and Leah in Genesis 29? It went on for days. And the happiness and the, the joy filled days, it just continued one day after the next. In the Old Testament, weddings were really big events. Now, today in our culture, I've never been to a wedding that went on for days and days and days. Usually there's a wedding, there's a reception, and what, two, three hours, you're home unless you travel for a long distance. But that's how weddings are in 2020. But no matter how long the ceremony lasts, including the short weddings, and Sharon and I were at a wedding a wedding a couple months ago, the whole wedding lasted seven minutes. So, I mean, we've been at a variety of different kinds of weddings. But for the most part, including that one that was only seven minutes, they're still happy, joyous events. People come to celebrate. And that seems to be what's happening in John chapter 2. Now, I want us to look at the text, and then we're going to try and figure out how do they run out of wine. Let's look at the first three verses. On, a th- on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Well, hold it. Stop right there. Let me give you a little bit of history. In New Testament culture, weddings took place on either Wednesday or Thursday. Now, I'm still mixed up on how they counted their days. Okay? There's a part of me that says the Sabbath was the seventh day. and then I've read other places where no, now Sunday is the first day, the Sabbath is still what we call Saturday, but the Sabbath or the, uh, the new Sabbath, the Sunday is now day number one. But there's other places that tell us that when they counted the days, they didn't count the Sabbath. But I know this, there's two days in the New Testament when people got married. If girls were getting married for the first time, the wedding was always on Wednesday. No question. Excuse me. If you were getting married the second time, if your husband had died and now you're a, uh, what are you, you're a widow and now you're going to get married the second time, those weddings were always on Thursday. This one, it says on the third day, a wedding took place in Canaan, Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Can you picture this? Jesus and the disciples are there, and Mary says, she looks at her son, and she says, they have no more wine. Now, let's see if we can make any sense out of this situation. There's a wedding in Cana. There's a wedding in Cana. And I can tell you this from the bottom of my heart. I have looked, and I have never discovered why Mary is in charge of this reception. I have no idea. But it sure seems like she's the one in charge. There's a wedding in Cana, and the text tells us that when they run out of wine, Mary turns to her son Jesus and says they're out of wine, and he says, what do you want me to do about it? Time has not come for me to to what? To be identified as the long-awaited Messiah. Mary is from where? She's from Nazareth. Cana is 8 miles north and a little bit east of Nazareth, and Cana is 20 or 25 miles west of the Sea of Galilee. You know, if you and I were going to go to a wedding and it's eight eight miles away, Gary, you probably drive farther than eight miles to come to church. So you hop in your car, eight miles in a car today is eight minutes. There are no cars. You're walking. It takes a while to walk eight miles, but somehow Mary ends up in charge. Now, some interpretations, some commentators I've read, say that this was a family wedding, and that's why Mary is in charge. But it's just their opinion. We can't prove that from Scripture. But if we're going to go down that road, I want to take us down another little road for a minute. Since the Bible doesn't tell us exactly, I have another idea. Maybe the wedding, will you let me have my, uh, my idea here? Maybe, maybe the wedding was for one of, Jesus' brothers or sisters. And maybe that's why Mary's in charge. Maybe one of his brothers is marrying a woman who's from the town of Cana. And that's why she's in charge. Um, I'm missing a passage here. Turn with me to Matthew 13 in your Bibles. It's not on the screen. Matthew 13, I want us to read four verses beginning in verse 53. You know, to me, as I read this text, it clearly says to me, it's as clear as the nose on my face, that Jesus has brothers and sisters. Apparently, Mary and Joseph had other children after they had Jesus. Verse 53 in Matthew 13 says, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there, coming to his hometown. He began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom? And they were miraculous powers. They asked, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. Now, the Catholic Church says that these names of these people are not his brothers and sisters, they're his cousins. But I'm not Catholic. And my Bible says they're brothers and sisters. It doesn't say anything about being cousins. He's got four brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And then he's got sisters, With an S on the end. He's plural. So there's Jesus. He's got four brothers and at least two sisters. One, two, three, four, five. So what is that? There's there's seven kids in that family minimum. It's a busy little household down there in Nazareth. By the way, Joseph is never mentioned here. So most people believe that by the time this happens, when Jesus is in his ministry and doing the first sign, Joseph has already passed away. It's just Mary. Now, I don't know whether you realize on another note entirely that two of Jesus' brothers also wrote books in the New Testament. There's four men in the New Testament named Joe uh, James. And the one that wrote the book of James is Jesus' brother. And his other brother, Judas, wrote the book of Jude. We just call him by a nickname, Jude. Now, back to the passage. I want us to look at the wording of verses 1 through 3. In Greek manuscripts, I want you to understand this, there's no punctuation, there's no verse numbers, there's no chapters. It's just a manuscript that goes on, word, 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 and when you get to the edge of the page, then it comes back over here, word, word, word. So it's up to the editors to decide where the verse starts and where it ends, and then they put in the verse numbers. But if there is no punctuation, I want you to read this verse with me. Look at verses 1 and 2. On the third day a wedding took place at Cana, are you in your Bibles? On the third day a wedding took place in Cana and Galilee, Jesus' mother was there. I want you to just in your mind, remove that comma. The comma is not part of Holy Scripture. That was put in by the editors. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus, put the comma after Jesus. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus... And his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, if we read it that way, and that's how I want to read it for the moment, it makes sense that it certainly could have been a family wedding, that Mary was there with Jesus, and then they invited the disciples to come as well. But Mary was the hostess, and the wine runs out. It would have been, uh, it would have been embarrassing. It would have been culturally a social error, a blunder, to run out of something like that. I read in one commentary where in, the, in Jewish culture in that first century, If you were an an invited guest to a wedding that ran out of either food or wine, the guests could bring a lawsuit against the bridal party. You know, if we would run out of pink cookies 46 years ago, no big deal. But that's not how it was in Jewish culture. Now remember, I think we've been around the church enough to know, up till this moment, Jesus has not performed any miracles. Nothing. This is going to be miracle number one. We also need to remind ourselves that Mary knows. She knows who Jesus is. She can still vividly, I'm sure vividly, remember the day that angel showed up in her house to talk to her about, oh, by the way, you're going to have God's son. You don't forget a conversation like that if there's anybody at the wedding that knows who Jesus is, it's his mother Mary. She knows Jesus is the (laughs) Messiah. Maybe she thought it was time for him to go public. So she instructs the servants to do whatever Jesus asked them to do and they are willing to do whatever Mary asked them to do. Now, Let's go back in time. Let's, let's go back through that, uh, that movie, Back to the Future. Let's go back to 30 AD or something like this. Let's all travel back in that little car. In Jewish culture, there's all kinds of ceremonies. There's all kinds of washing ceremonies. I mean, you and I, I mean, I know what that's like when we had kids at home. I, did you wash your hands before you eat? Well, sometimes. You know what that's like if you've got little kids at home. You're all. They have all kinds of washing ceremonies rituals. And we can't help but imagine they must have had some kind of washing rituals when it comes to weddings, because here they are with these stone jars, and they must have been planning on a substantial need for that much water. Verse 6 says, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. That's a lot of water. Right? They need that water for something. Now, a gallon of water weighs 8 pounds. If I remember right, it actually weighs 8.3 pounds. But for conversation's sake, let's say a gallon of water weighs weighs 8 pounds. And these stone jars hold 20 gallons of water. 20 times 8. I've been out of math class for a long time, but that used to be 160 pounds. Right? Is it still that with the new math? So each jar holds a hundred and what? Sixty pounds of water. And the bigger ones would hold 180? How, how am I doing that? No, 30 gallons, they'd hold 240 pounds. So you can imagine all of a sudden as we read ahead, the servants aren't going to kick up, pick up that... Plus, you've got to add the weight of the stone jar. So that's why they're not going to just, Gary, help me with this. It only weighs 240 pounds. We're going to carry six of these up to the master of ceremonies so they can do whatever's needed done. That's why Jesus says, now in verse 8, Now draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. Nobody can carry a stone jar that has 20 gallons of water in it, let alone the 30-gallon jars. And here, Now, just picture this with me. We're going to bring this to a close. Jesus, without saying a prayer, without waving his hands, without clapping his hands three times, he turns the water into wine. Right? It's just, it's a miraculous. And the master of the banquet says, and this is how it is in the middle of verse 9 and then on to 10. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till last. What the master is really saying, and it's easy to translate this direct from Greek to English, he says, well, the trick is at the wedding, the way we usually do this is we serve the best wine first And then after everybody's had too much to drink, just think about that. We've all lived in the real world. After they're already buzzed up a little bit and they're not going to know the difference, then we can bring out the cheap stuff because nobody's going to tell the difference. What it actually says is after the people are drunk, then we bring out the cheap stuff because nobody's going to tell the difference. But then he says, but you've done things a different way. You've saved the best till last. Now let me tell you what I think it means. Just think about this with me. Does it really matter for eternity whether some wedding in the town of Cana runs out of wine at their wedding? Does it really matter for all eternity? Is it going to change anybody's salvation? No. Right? Is that going to matter for eternity? Not a bit. So why does Jesus do it? This is his first miracle. He does it because he wants the people to understand that the little problems in life, he's just as concerned about the little problems in life as he is concerned about the big problems in life. Jesus knows it isn't going to matter two hoots if they ran out of wine. But he performs this miracle because he wants people to understand he is the Lamb of God. He's the Son of God. He's the long-awaited Messiah. And because he has God's attributes in his own life, he is omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent. And he is just as concerned about the little things in life as he's concerned about the big things in life. Dave, I'm convinced he's just as concerned about Terry's cancer as he is the little girl in first grade that forgot her lunch at school. That's who God is. And so we imagine we have, all these, we have all these big things and some of us have big things and some of us have more than one big thing that we keep asking God to pray for. And that's great, but he's concerned about the little things in our life as well. That's what this is all about, to remind us that there is a God who sent his son into this world and he loves us and he cares for us and he cares about every little detail of our life. He's just as concerned for the person who's suffering from cancer as he's concerned about that little first grader who forgot her lunch at home. He's just as concerned for the bridal couple who ran out of wine as he's concerned about the Sunday school teacher who ran out of cookies. He's compassionate, merciful, and he cares for his children. And he's never annoyed. He never gets annoyed when we come with him when we come into his presence asking him to help us with our problems, whether they're big or small. And I read some place where people now believe and some of these Bible scholars believe that that's the way most miracles happen in our world today. They occur in ways that seem so natural that most people don't even recognize them as miracles. Let's pray. And then let's take the offering. Dear Heavenly Father, We ask that you would give us faith, more faith, stronger faith to trust you with our little things in life. And sometimes, Lord, and and I'm as guilty as anyone, it's almost like I hate to bother you with these little things. I only want to pray for big things. But Lord, help me to understand that you really do care about all the little details in all of our lives. It's not that you just care about some of us. You care about all of us, and you care about everything that's going on in our life, day after day after day. So help us, Lord, to walk with that kind of faith, to be grateful that we serve a living God, a loving God, a kind, gracious God, who wants to be a part of our life. And Lord, we thank you for this offering. We thank you that you've been so faithful in meeting all of our needs right up until this moment. And because of that, we can trust you for the future. So we thank you for each gift and for each giver. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.